Hi, warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us and TGIF. Still lots to get to before we close out the week. After 13 rises in a row, the Dow breaks its winning streak. Intel shows big tech earnings remain chipper and chic. And in a surprise move, the Bank of Japan makes an important policy tweak. Call it a BOG, BOJ end of week eek. And from me, the central bank headed by its brand new chairman has made an unexpected adjustment to its ultra loose monetary policy. Officials leaving rates unchanged, the rock bottom levels, but allowing bond yields to fluctuate within a wider band. You can read this as perhaps opening the door to higher yields and therefore a tightening of policy. Now, it's all minor moves for now, but it's also being seen as a potential prelude to at some point a move higher in base rates. And that was enough to cause a rally in the Japanese yen and see pressure on Japanese stocks. The Nikkei off by almost half a percent in the session Friday. Turning to China now too, and a strong finish as you can see there. Bloomberg reporting Beijing is looking for ways to boost stock performance and at the same time boost investor confidence. It certainly worked today. Turning now to US investor confidence, Wall Street looking to end the week higher as you can see there with good earnings from chip giant Intel as I mentioned helping propel Nasdaq futures forward. Intel back in the black and returning to profitability after two straight quarterly losses. And speaking of losses, the Dow sunk Thursday, ending its longest winning streak in more than 30 years. So close yet so far. We've gone from recession risk to no recession to perhaps the risk of a reacceleration in growth and perhaps therefore more work for the Federal Reserve to do. And I think that kicked in for investor sentiment yesterday. Inflation trends, however, still heading in the right direction. One of the Fed's preferred measures of inflation, the core piece. CE rate, as it's known, easing to 4.1% year over year. That, of course, is still firmly above their inflationary targets, but it is a touch weaker than expected and almost the lowest rate in two years. We'll talk about that later, but for now, we do begin in Ukraine, where the Ukrainian counteroffensive appears to be escalating. New video appears to show troops recapturing another village in the southeast, you can see on this map, and This footage also showing a Ukrainian military vehicle reaching Russia's critical defensive line known as Dragon's Teeth. Sama Abdelaziz joins us now. Sama, it does follow just a day after CNN got official word from U.S. officials confirming that they were committing more troops to the south. Tie that in with what we appear to be seeing now and hearing from the Ukrainians themselves. Yes, so today Ukraine saying it's been able to consolidate gains in the south, regain uh, a village in the Donetsk region and even repel attacks from Russian forces in the east of the country. But still, these are relatively minor, modest gains in a months-long counteroffensive that has yet to see any major victories. And by major victory, I mean actually piercing through defensive positions, actually piercing through and able to cut supply lines for Moscow's troops. You can see the length of that front line in the map. It is absolutely an enormous task for Ukraine to staff, fight and man all of those hundreds of miles of front line of battlefield where Russian forces have, of course, been digging in for months. I want to give you an example of the types of obstacles uh, that Ukrainian forces are facing. Let's pull up that video again that you mentioned of the drag 
dragon's teeth defensive line. This is material video that was shot in just one area to the south of the country near the Zaporizhia region, where you see again those defensive lines. What those are, they are pyramids of rebar and concrete. Sometimes they're three rows deep and they go for hundreds of miles. And you can see that tank attempting to go through what is also a ditch that's been dug there by Russian forces, specifically for the purposes of stopping tanks from going through. And that's just one of the many methods uh, that Moscow's forces have used, have applied in order to try to slow any gains by Ukrainian troops. In other parts of the battlefield, Ukrainian forces have described it as a hellscape, saying that they're first shelled by Russian artillery and then Russian helicopters come in and bomb their positions. That keeps Kyiv's troops far enough away from Moscow's positions that they're too far at times for even artillery to reach. So what is Ukraine's solution? What is Ukraine doing? Well, what Ukraine is doing right now with its military forces and NATO equipment is trying to find weaknesses. I'll give you the example of the area of Tumak. This is an area to the south. It is a critical supply route that connects to Crimea uh, that Russia uses as a headquarters essentially on those front lines. And Ukraine has been pummeling that, trying to, again, soften Russian positions, weaken their supply chains, uh, take out storage depots, weapons storage depots if they can. But again, this is going to take time, slow and steady. Ukraine has admitted They are behind schedule, but they say, look, what did you expect? Just as we were preparing for months, so was Russia. Yeah, it's an important explanation, I think, and a visual explanation of why it's taking so long to push forward. Summer, thank you. Interesting uh, report there, Summer Abdelaziz. Now, a further intelligence report reveals how China has become a key ally of Russia. The report, compiled by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, stated that China, quote, has become an increasingly important buttress for Russia in its war effort. The report reveals how Chinese state-owned defense companies have provided Russia with various war technologies despite Western sanctions. Natasha Bertrand is at the Pentagon for us. Natasha, can you give us any sense of what technologies and what equipment we're talking about here? Yeah, Julia, a really significant report here from the Director of National Intelligence, and it is unclassified, but it really provides a window into what the U.S. believes that China is doing. Now, according to this report, China, as of March, had provided the Russians with over $12 million worth of drones and drone equipment. They have also provided, according to the intelligence assessment, uh, Chinese state-owned defense companies have provided Russian defense companies with a lot of dual-use technology, and that includes includes navigation equipment, uh, jamming technology, as well as fighter jet parts. So obviously things that Russia could really use in its war in Ukraine, especially as sanctions have really dug into Moscow's ability to produce its own uh, equipment for the war. So China really ramping up here its support in terms of non-lethal equipment to the Russians. The U.S. has not necessarily seen at this point that they are providing weaponry to the Russians. But this kind of technology, uh, as you said, has led to this assessment by the Director of National Intelligence that China, quote, has become an increasingly important buttress to Russia's war efforts. Now, the amount of uh, uh, semiconductors that China is also providing to Russia, things like uh, chips that can be used in uh, Russian defense technology, that has also sold 
soared uh, since 2021, the, the, the rate in which the Chinese companies are shipping these to the Russians. Uh, the report also says that it, the U.S. believes that China is helping Russia to evade uh, many of the Western sanctions that have been imposed since the war in, uh, in Ukraine uh, began. And they cannot tell just how much the Chinese are trying to interfere in the U.S.'s ability to monitor uh, those uh, export control measures that they have placed on the Russians, but they do believe that these Chinese companies are helping the Russians to evade these sanctions that were very purposefully imposed to try to diminish Russia's war chest. So a really significant report here that seems to belie China's repeated denials that it is providing any kind of uh, support for Russia's war in Ukraine. However, we did receive a statement from the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C., denying uh, many parts uh, of this intelligence report, but notably uh, denying something that the report also did not necessarily accuse them of, which is selling weapons uh, to the Russians. Their uh, response says, quote, China does not sell weapons to parties involved in the Ukraine crisis and prudently handles the export of dual-use items in accordance with laws and regulations. It continues to say China-Russia economic and trade cooperation is completely above board and does not target any third party and shall be free from disruption or coercion by any third party. So the Chinese not necessarily giving a full-throated denial of this, uh, but obviously this is something that is going to continue to be a major irritant in the U.S.-China relationship, Julia. Mm. Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much for that report. And later in the show, we're going to be talking to the CEO of Fortum Technologies about the changing face of modern warfare and specifically the use of drones, very relevant to both of those reports. All right, let's move on. Meanwhile, President Putin thanking North Korea for supporting Russia's war in Ukraine. The comments came in a speech to North Korean officials, according to state media. The regime of Kim Jong-un has been celebrating the 70th anniversary of the Korean War armistice with a flamboyant military parade. Mark Stewart has more. This parade is very much in line with North Korea's past efforts to present a symbolic show of force within the nation and beyond. The military arsenal included two models of intercontinental ballistic missiles. This includes the Wasong-18, which, according to analysts, likely has the range to target all of the mainland United States. In addition, according to state media, two types of drones flew overhead, one described as a strategic reconnaissance drone, the other as a multi-purpose attack drone. This parade comes as North Korea has hosted delegates from both China and Russia. And on the topic of Russia, Russian President Vladimir Putin presented a speech to North Korean officials. According to state media, he acknowledged North Korea's firm support for Russia's war in Ukraine, suggesting it emboldens the two countries' determination to deal with the West. As we've reported in the past, U.S. officials have claimed North Korea has given Russia rockets and artillery. Tension in the region has been high in recent days, as an American submarine with nuclear capability has been in the waters of South Korea, and North Korea test-fired its Wasong-18 ICBM for the third time this year. This was on July 12th. Mark Stewart, CNN, Tokyo. Two days after soldiers declared a military coup in Niger, the general who led the takeover appeared on state TV and declared himself the president of a national council for the preservation of the fatherland. 
It's believed Mohamed Bazoum, the elected president, is still being held in his residence. Larry Madao joins us now from Nairobi. Larry, this was one of the things that we were sort of speculating about yesterday when we were asking the question of what comes next. What might this National Council and this general now do? We still don't know a lot beyond this general showing up on TV and repeating what they said Wednesday night when they officially declared that they had ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. So Abdurrahman Tiani is the head of the presidential guard. This is the man who's been in charge of protecting President Bazoum. Now he's declaring himself the new leader of Niger. He says he's the president of the Council to Safeguard the Fatherland, or the Homeland if you prefer. This is the coup plotters who showed up on TV Wednesday night and said that because of a breakdown in security and the social economic situation in the country, they had to take over. And today, this man who's also known as Omar Tiani said that the direction was, the country was going the wrong direction and that he had to take charge. The action of the CNSP is motivated by the desire to preserve our beloved country. On the one hand, because of the security degradation of our country, and this without the deposed authorities giving us a glimpse of a real way out of the crisis. Secondly, because of the poor economic and social governance. Please. Dr. Parr. This man was in charge of the presidential guard since at least 2015. He is an ally of the former Nigerian president, Isufu. And on the street in Niamey, in the capital, it was rumored that he was about to get fired so that President Mohamed Bazoum would have somebody of his own choosing, not somebody who was selected by the last president. And then on Wednesday, he was detained at his presidential palace, and now this. To be clear, several international leaders have said that they have spoken to President Bazoum, that he's still contactable. The French President Emmanuel Macron, the UN Secretary General, the African Union Chair have all said that they've spoken to him, and even the senior US officials, including Antony Blinken, have said that they've spoken to him and they demand that he return back to power. We have from French President Emmanuel Macron earlier today, who said that he condemns this takeover of power in Niger, that President Bazoum is the democratically elected president, a courageous man, he called him, and he was making the necessary reforms and investments that his country needs. But now, whether he becomes president again, it's very unlikely. Will they put him on trial? Will they allow him to go in exile? Can he turn this around, Julia? A lot of questions we just don't have answers for right now. We'll keep asking. Larry, great to have you. Thank you. Now, back here in the United States, new charges against Donald Trump in the classified documents case against him. Prosecutors allege the former president asked a staffer to delete security camera footage at Mar-a-Lago after it was subpoenaed. This, according to an updated indictment, Sarah Murray joins us on this now. That staffer now a third defendant in the case, too. What more do we know about these fresh charges and why they're only coming to light now? That's right. There is a new defendant in this case. But, you know, more importantly, former President Donald Trump is now facing three additional charges, and two of them have to do with this alleged scheme to try to delete the surveillance footage at Mar-a-Lago. Prosecutors subpoenaed for that footage after the government had already been at Mar-a-Lago. They had subpoenaed, saying, please return any documents with classified markings. When they went there to pick them up, they noticed that there were these surveillance cameras outside of the storage room that had been searched. So they subpoenaed for that surveillance footage 
footage. Then they learned throughout the course of their investigation that there had allegedly been this effort by Trump aides, including this new defendant, Carlos de Oliveira, to try to delete some of the security footage. It sort of runs through in great detail in this indictment conversations de Oliveira is having with other uh, Trump employees. And at one point he says, the boss wants the server deleted. And he asks, what are we going to do? Obviously, the boss here uh, likely referring to former President Donald Trump. So this is a new element in this indictment. Again, Donald Trump already faced many charges in the original version of the indictment. And this just sort of adds to the former president's mounting legal troubles. Yes, stacking up. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks. State ahead. Record-setting temperatures and a call to action. The new chair of the world's top climate advisory body joining us to discuss the threat to our planet. And later, how drones are changing the face of modern warfare. We'll talk to the CEO of the startup that's helping Ukrainian forces on the front lines. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. As temperature records are broken around the world, the UN Secretary General is urging world leaders to act and prevent worse. Climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the the era of global boiling has arrived. The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is one of the world's most recognized scientific bodies on global warming. Earlier this year, it released a report highlighting the devastating impact of climate change, as well as detailing cost-effective actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The IPCC reports provide crucial input into international negotiations on just how the world responds. And our next guest is stepping up to lead the organization at a time when those conversations are more important than ever. Jim Ski is the new chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and he joins us now. Jim, fantastic to have you on the show. Congratulations on the new role. I hope you're not daunted because, oh boy, does the world and you yourself and your leadership yeah. have a challenge ahead. Talk me through what the plan is. Well, I've just 
Well, I've just woken up on the last two mornings uh, to realise just the scale of the responsibility that's facing mm. me. But I guess, I guess I'm really up to it. Now, the job of the IPCC is to provi uh, provide advice to the UN and to the governments of the world about climate change and the kind of climate action that can follow the, the very clear evidence that we're getting at the moment. And I think we've done that. You know, five years ago, uh, we produced the special report on global warming of one and a half degrees. We put the concept of net zero emissions on the map, and now that's been followed up by governments. So now we need is the kind of evidence that supports the actual action that will allow all these goals to be met. I mean, a lot of people looking around the world would say we're seeing the evidence now for our own eyes. Skeptics would say, hey, we've had hot summers, we've had flooding in the past. Have we got enough evidence now to justify more action? Because that's surely what's required. We, we absolutely have the evidence. I mean, our last report said that the evidence for human beings on the climate is absolutely unequivocal, and all of the countries of the world signed up to that. So following on from that action, and what we are seeing at the moment in terms of extreme weather and wildfires has been predicted by IPCC, but I have to say it appears to be happening more quickly uh, than, uh, than we uh, expected. And uh, on current trends, you know, it's only going to get worse. It's going to get more frequent and it's going to get more extreme with uh, dire effects on people's lives. I mean, you've worked with the IPCC now, advising, guiding for, for many years. I think part of the challenges, and I know you were a co-author of a report talking about solutions, so not just talking about the problems, the warnings, but how we can take action. Yeah. It's not just about reducing emissions, it's about how we adapt to a changing climate today with profound implications for, for workers, where we build homes, how we build homes. There's just a few examples. Is this the low-hanging fruit yeah, I mean, we must pursue both mitigation and adaptation because, you know, the world is only going to get warmer. It's going to have impacts on sea level, sea level flooding, extreme temperatures. And it is really important that we do adapt and build and plan our cities in ways that will be more adaptable in terms of the climate change that we're going to face. And at the level of individual buildings, uh, you know, we need to, to do the appropriate things as well. We need to look at so-called green and blue solutions in cities, more vegetation cover in cities, more water bodies that will help us mitigate climate change because it will reduce air conditioning needs and at the same time will help us adapt to that warmer world. You know, yesterday on the show we had um, the authors of a recent report that was looking at um, AMOC, and I'll make sure I spell it or pronounce it correctly, the Atlantic Meridional um, Overturning Current. And they were saying that it's most yeah. likely weakening or could collapse somewhere between 2039 and 2070. Now, I know the IPCC had said that they weren't predicting this to happen till after 2100. Jim, to your earlier point about things happening more quickly than anticipated, do, do you acknowledge and agree that perhaps even the research that you guys are producing perhaps um, isn't alarmist enough? No, just to say uh, that IPCC doesn't actually do research. We assess the work that other people done. 
do. And the study that we've just seen is just one example of the kind of studies that appear in the scientific literature. And only very recently did we conclude uh, that it was unlikely that there would be a breakdown in that North Atlantic circulation on the kind of time scales that this particular paper has predicted. So we have to wait. We have to look at the literature as a whole. It's only one study. And I don't think uh, th that it is entirely conclusive that we are so worried about the breakdown of the North Atlantic circulation at the moment. That was not the conclusion of the most recent IPCC report. Yeah, so I, I think it's an important point, and forgive me, not the research, the conclusions, um, that, that some balance is found here too. Does it worry you that whether we look within nations, across nations, that the climate debate is increasingly politicised. I've certainly seen, and you'll know, in the UK, voices that have said, look, why should we push our consumers to take action to reduce emissions when China's ramping up of coal, as an example, will more than outweigh any benefit that the UK achieves in, in one year? Jim, how do you find that balance? Because you are trying to find balance between nations with your advice. Yeah, uh, we need to acknowledge uh, that it's not only climate change that's going to affect people's lives. The measures that we take to address climate change will also have social and, e and, and economic implications as well. It's why in the last report we started to flag the idea of just transition, the idea that in transitioning to net zero we should pay much more attention to the impacts of climate action, for example on disadvantaged groups or groups of workers who may be working in high carbon industries at the moment. So we're well aware, I think, of the fact that uh, there are implications of climate change action, but we need systematic ways of actually addressing that. And there are solutions because there are jobs in low carbon industries and there are other benefits that people will get in the longer term from actually reducing the impacts of climate change. Jim, whenever I speak to John Kerry, and we've spoken frequently about this, um, he talks about money, money, money and the need for financing whether it's financing for new innovation to help us bring emissions down or financing for poorer nations that in many cases are facing the worst effects and actually can do little about it because they simply don't have the, moon, the room to manoeuvre, financially at least. Um, do you have thoughts on that and are you part of those discussions on how we yeah, take the money we absolutely. have? Absolutely. We devoted a whole... Yeah. yeah, we devoted an entire chapter to investment and finance in our last report and we concluded that there is enough money in the world to deal with the challenge of climate mitigation adaptation. The big challenge is to find the mechanisms and the channels to get that money absolutely to where it's needed. Actually, you know, support, for example, for renewable energy tends to have lower gaps, though there are still gaps. The challenge is getting money to smaller projects of the kind that householders may need to implement, that smallholders involved in land use and agriculture are involved. And I think that is the, the biggest challenge. It's not the money is around. We just need to get it to the right places. What's day one, Jim, on the job? What's the, what's the first priority for you? 
Well, 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 just to say, in, in my uh, speech just before being elected, I promised to do things on uh, Thursday, yesterday, and Friday today. <laughs> and I'm pleased to say that I am now engaging uh, with the other, because, you know, there are 34 scientific leaders of IPCC being elected all at the same session. I've started to engage with them, and we're already making our plans as to how the ambitions I had in my election campaign are going to be implemented. And I'm tough to say I've been quite delighted by the cooperation and the, the spirit of friendship in which we've got these conversations going. Yeah, you, I think you, uh, you got the title nudger-in-chief as a result of that because you're uh, seen as yeah. an action man rather than a talker. <laughs> um, good luck, sir. It should be pusher-in-chief, I think, rather than oh. nudger, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thank you very much. Jim, thank you. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Jim Ski, the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are in play for the last trading day of the week, and it is a higher open, as expected, with more high-profile earnings in focus, including consumer goods giant Procter & Gamble. They beat on the top and bottom lines, but unlike a lot of the blue chips this earnings season, they have issued some weaker guidance. Intel, though, a big early session gainer after raising their guidance up almost 5%. Intel profitable again, too, for the first time in a couple of quarters. Stocks also getting a boost for more encouraging inflation data. No Jay Powell scowl today as his preferred measure of inflation comes in at the lowest level in almost two years. And by the way, the Dow almost almost matching an all-time winning streak record Thursday that dates back well over 100 years. And Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we've basically gone from recession to no recession yep. to the risk of re-acceleration. I'm going to put you on the spot now. Do you think Jay Powell hikes rates again? Oh, my gosh. I, we have eight weeks of data. So yeah. that's what's going to be. There's a long runway here for, for things to change. I've been watching gas prices rise and commodities prices rise and wonder how that might play into the inflation fears that the Fed is having. But to put another R in your stable of R words there, resilient, is the other one here. I mean, this economy has really defied expectations. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average, Julia, is, is what, 1% from record highs? Mm. And we've had 11 rate hikes? I mean, that's just remarkable another mind-blowing so, <laughs> it really is <laughs> inexplicable it really is. and yes. some people are saying look the nervous nellies are already kind of like wait a minute maybe the stock market's too ahead of itself you know we haven't slayed the inflation dragon completely although the pce price index today was you know in line with what we had been expecting that inflation is cooling so there's just it's just such an interesting moment right now with the fed 11 rate hikes in um i guess the september Discussion is, will they hike or hold? And then what happens next after that? I think one thing I've learned to say, student of markets and business over the years is remain humble and assume there's lots that you don't yeah. know. Um, yeah. And if in doubt, call Christine Romans because she <laughs> always has the answer. Christine, I have a frog in my throat. I didn't know until today, but this is your last day at yes. CNN. I know. Um, <laughs> look, I walked in here in, in 1999 as a, uh, as a bond market reporter, a bond market print reporter. 
a wire service reporter, and basically learned, oh my gosh, she's showing all of my old haircuts. But I, I learned <laughs> so much from here. I went down on the floor of the stock exchange and did the opening bell of the stock exchange for several years. So they took this bond currency reporter and, and I, I learned the stock market. And I really have loved every up and down along the way. And I have to say, that it's just the whole CNN stable of brands is, is, is just a, f a family of hardworking uh, people who ask questions um, and really want to deliver for the viewer. So I'm just so appreciative of the viewer and all the people that we've worked with all these years. Yeah, and, and we're on the TV, but the people behind the scenes who work so hard to, um, to get us there and, and true our viewers as well. Look, they, I actually, speaking of being able to do a few things, I actually know how to use the system here. And look, that, I, that's my banner. Can you read it? Christine, please don't go. We have another one. We have another one. Yeah, I know. You know, Julia hacked the Chiron system. <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't worry, there's more of them to come. Like, what do you want us to put? I'm like, don't worry, I can take control of this. Um, but, you know, I, the thing I love about being on air with you, one, your enormous brain, um, which I just love. And there's, look, there you go. I love your brain. There's the, the Chiron <laughs> But also that we laugh so much. In addition yeah. to making me smarter, um, you are such an amazing person. And you also, uh, we've gone back in the archives, you also stepped in to do my show. I'm lucky I got my job back. Um, here's some of our moments. Here's <laughs>「Romans sitting in for Julia Chatterley. December is usually that Santa Claus rally, the ho, ho, ho. It's ho, ho, no. Right now, the Santa Claus hat turned upside down, red arrows across the board. Christine Romans. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, we have that habit. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Let's begin with our feature attraction, The Monetary Matrix. Christine Romans stars in this movie and no one's well taking done, any pills. Well no one's taking done. any pills. Take some profits off the table while you can, quite frankly, because I think that's probably what we're talking about here. Let's be clear, just 5% off record highs. Yeah. As always, we agree. Christy Bowman's, someday we won't. Thank nice you to that. see you. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm neither am I, actually. I'm just saying it. We, we are kind we of on the same We spend the whole hour doing that. <laughs> Julia, you're so smart. I completely agree with what you just said. <laughs> Funny, that. Funny how What's we're the on plan? the same break. Can we um, ask? Plan? Are you going to take some oh. time off? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, actually, I'm going to take the rest of the month off. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I haven't had a break. I have, my dad actually showed me recently all of my tax returns since I was 14. I have worked nonstop since I was 14 years old because I love capitalism. And uh, I'm just going to take <laughs> the month of August off, and then you'll see me after that. So Yes, we will see you. You are amazing. You are a great person. Thank you. Everybody loves you. I've had so much you. fun with you. I've had so much yeah. fun with you, Julia, really. Yeah, I'm, my heart's sad, but I'm happy for you because... Um, I'm just a text yeah. message away, dear. I mean, we can I know. still oh, talk you about... You can still <laughs> talk about the Powell scowl anytime you want. You just... Uh, I'm one text away. more exciting things to talk about, Christine. <laughs> True. Heart to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You're the best. <laughs> okay, coming up after the break. Meet the drone hunters. Autonomous flying machines that can intercept and capture enemy drones. Just one of the weapons helping Ukraine fight Russian forces. The company behind them, next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. 
Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. Russian authorities say air defenses destroyed a drone launched by Ukraine to attack the Moscow region. They say there were no casualties and no damage was done. CNN is unable to verify the report, but drone use is already changing the face of warfare. And our next guest runs a defense startup that's helping Ukrainian forces fight the war. Fortum Technologies is a provider of both software and hardware, including an unmanned system called the Drone Hunter F700. As you can see, this device has the ability to capture other drones in flight by firing a net attached to a parachute. Fortum is a private firm backed by Boeing, Toshiba and Lockheed Martin Ventures, among others. And John Gruen is the chairman and CEO, and he joins us now. John, fantastic to have you with us. Just give us a flavor of what Fortum Technologies actually has and compromises of, and um, then we'll talk about specific tech. Absolutely. Great to be with you today. So Fortum was founded in 2016. It was based on a uh, radar technology that had been worked for many decades, but as technological advances were being made on it to make it uh, smaller, more high power, and higher fidelity, we were able to spin it out into a very small form factor radar, which then uh, was then put on drones to see if it could act as its own seeker in the sky. And that uh, started off Fordham on a, on a path to do what is the F-700 today, but really it has uh, become a family of sensors and effectors that are applicable to the counter UAS market right now. So explain what we were seeing there and just how useful these are on the battlefield to identify and intercept other drones, because I think this has proven to be crucial on the battlefield. It really has. It's it's a new uh, wave of technology where you have artificial intelligence on the drone itself. So you have the seeker in the radar on the drone, plus all the artificial intelligence. So it's able to go and seek out these adversarial drones in the sky and then go mitigate them. So we do that currently with the net to be low collateral effect. So you're not creating debris, you're not creating a falling drone out of the sky. And so it's a much safer way to interdict these threats. Can you then reuse that drone that you've captured? Does it bring it back down to earth and then perhaps that drone can be repurposed? Absolutely. So that's the other benefit. So carrying it under a net, we can uh, bring it down wherever it is uh, desired to be. And then that drone is completely uh, either exploitable uh, for forensics or potentially even reusable. How successful is one of these if we're talking about a swarm of drones, 50 to 100 drones? Can you give us a sense of the accuracy and how able the drones that it's trying to capture are able to perhaps deflect and avoid the nets. So, great point. And you know, we really use the Ukrainian experience to enhance the capabilities of the of the drone hunter and the F seven hundred. And one of those is into the swarm capabilities. So originally, we were deployed to get reconnaissance type drones, and that quickly uh, changed to us needing to get to some of the larger. 
uh, drones that were doing uh, kamikaze style missions. And those are the Shahed 131s and 136s. So that was our initial uh, advancement was being able to get those larger, faster drones. And then that has quickly morphed into what is not quite on the battlefield in a meaningful way yet, but uh, swarms. And so from our point of view, it really comes down to the type of effector we have under the drone. So we are able to go and, and put a number of different types, which may not, are not going to be nets completely in the future. So the drone itself is becoming you know, learning and becoming better able to read the threat coming at it, whether that's large and fast or whether that's swarm. And so that artificial intelligence keeps building and learning. And now it's a matter of just having the right effector for the type of threat coming at it. Yeah, I'm sort of reading between the lines and listening to you. And I think what's standing most or standing out most to me is how quickly you're having to learn and adapt in real time. And if I take a step back, I do think there's a sort of military revolution taking place and it's happening far more quickly than we saw, say, between a land foot soldier war in the First World War and a mechanized um, vehicle uh, mechanical war in the, in the Second World War. I mean, you're already as a tech company and a private tech company adapting to that. How is the government and governments around the world adapting to that, whether it's procurement, funding, support? Because you're a private company, but there are governments involved here on many sides. Uh, we've certainly seen a massive increase in our engagements and in the development efforts of governments around the world. They've observed what is happening in Ukraine and look, many of them, you know, at their borders and see the same potential problem. So we, we are definitely in a rapid development phase with a number of different countries. Each country has its unique uh, threat to uh, aspects to it. So we, we tend to work with that host country and that partner to modify the system in little ways to make it applicable to their environments. And so it, it really is uh, a joint effort at that point. And so that requires joint funding. But we also have our uh, private capital investors that are supporting us through this evolution. And they've been phenomenal. And they have enabled us to be at the forefront and stay at the forefront of this development. Yeah, it's the private capital that's important in this too. Is the Ukrainian government buying these drones? Are they paying for them? Or are you getting government support? Obviously, there's NATO funding involved here as well. Uh, interestingly, it was very much Ukrainians uh, at first themselves. Right. So they had a couple mechanisms. Some were through the crowdsourced donation sites. And, and then obviously they had some uh, of their own budget as well. So the early uh, year plus of them buying our system was all their own money. And then now, uh, as they've expressed the need to uh, friendly governments, now we're starting to see those other governments uh, start to fund our system as well. John, there's also an ethical question that I always think about when we're talking about this kind of equipment and the use of this kind of equipment, whether it's for defense or attack purposes. Um, do your investors talk to you about that too? And, and how do you respond in, in terms of the ethics of this? Well, I mean, I, I think it's pretty apparent when you go to Ukraine and you see the threat that they're facing constantly, you leave there wanting to do everything you can to protect those people. 
And so for us to be able to develop a capability that goes and removes those menacing threats out of the sky, it's not even a question for us. So yeah. you know, we're, we're fortunate in that we have the ability to see immediate effects of our system in an incredibly positive way on the battlefield by mitigating those threats. So we are, we are proud to do it and it is, it is uh, an easy decision for us. Yes, you, you found your answer in Ukraine, I think is the message. John, good to chat to you. John Gruen there, Chairman and CEO of Fortum Technologies. So thanks for your time. Welcome back. As we mentioned earlier on the show, client scientists say that this month is set to be the hottest in human history. The UN Secretary General says the planet has moved from a period of global warming to one of global boiling and that world leaders must act now to stop things from getting worse. Gabe Cohen has more on just how bad things have got. It's now the planet's hottest month in human history. We need people to make sure that they're staying hydrated. We need them to stay indoors. 150 million Americans are under heat alerts Thursday being told to stay inside, driving up demand for cool air, causing a dire strain on the country's largest power grid that covers 13 states and D.C., impacting 65 million people amid this hot weather alert that will last through at least Friday. This after Texas's independent energy grid has faced record demand amid soaring temperatures. The heat wave sent temperatures above 110 degrees for more than three weeks in parts of the southwest, and at least 25 people died from the heat in Arizona alone. It's the heat. The heat causes problems, period. My heart goes out to people who lose their life from heat-related illness or heat stroke. In Texas, officials say scorching temperatures have led to a record spike in medical calls. We're way over already. And in California, the heat is creating conditions for more wildfires. In states as far north as Minnesota, where July is usually in the 80s, the asphalt is now buckling in the heat reaching into the hundreds. Farmers there worry that the temperatures will also destroy their profits. I have a prayer that I hope is answered that our fruit that is still green and pink can actually weather the heat storm. Here in Washington, the mayor declaring a public emergency. You got a cooling towel already. Great, great. Converting city buses into makeshift cooling centers for vulnerable and low-income people without regular access to air conditioning and shelter. Cold water, cold water! It's not unbearable, but... Uh, it's, it's tough. It's, it's hard. It, I mean, it wears you down, especially at 61. The Biden White House now addressing the countrywide heat emergency, directing the Labor Department to issue a nationwide heat advisory for workers. But some protections fall on states. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. And those states where they do not, I'm going to be calling them out. And so emergency officials here in the Northeast and other parts of the country that are experiencing these brutal temperatures say they are extremely worried about the people who are still spending time outside despite the heat. Uh, here in Washington, the heat index Thursday was close to 110 degrees. The weather Friday expected to be similar. Gabe Cohen, CNN, Washington. And finally, on First Move, we've been calling it Swiftonomics. Taylor Swift's own economic oomph, thanks to her sellout tours delivering soaring ticket sales, 
hotel bookings and, of course, related spending. Now, some people even accuse her and other stars of pushing up inflation. But forget inflation. Now she and her Swifties can apparently cause earthquakes. Kind of. Fans dancing for two nights when Swift's tour hit Seattle caused seismic activity on a par with a 2.3 magnitude earthquake. That's according to seismologists. Now, this graph, yes, we always have the graph to show it, shows near identical spikes on both nights as she progressed through her set list. There can be no doubt she rocks our world, and I hope your weekend rocks too. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. Have a great weekend. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.